Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Thanks, Joy. Morning, everyone. Uh, we apparently have posh ham at home, so I'll keep this brief. Um, uh, I thought I'd start this morning, actually, with a couple of uh, book recommendations. Uh, we don't do this often. I did this at the start of last term, and a few people said they found it helpful. Uh, so as long as people do find it helpful, I'll keep doing this from time to time. I know I've been helped over the years with recommendations from others that have shaped my thinking and shaped my faith. Um, so I'm just going to give you three for starters. Uh, the first one is actually a children's book, and uh, I do this deliberately, actually, as a way of reminding us that some of the most important people in our community are actually in the, the next-door room right now. And we actually have a corporate responsibility to shape these precious little lives. Uh, While I am primarily responsible as a dad for my own children, I actually have a role to speak into the lives of every child in my church family, as you have a role to play in shaping my own children's lives. And uh, so this first book is called Indescribable by Louis Giglio. Uh, It was actually recommended to me by uh, a leader in a church in Exeter at a conference I attended last year as one of the best devotionals uh, for young children. Uh, So I bought it and I've been through it with my own kids and I think it's absolutely fantastic. It takes some really complicated scientific principles and some really profound biblical ideas and it meshes them together to produce some really meaningful devotionals with some wonderful prayers at the end. And it's the first material I found that my kids have been like, Dad, can we do more of this? Um, Recommended ages around about 6 through to 10, but I think you could probably uh, expand that a little bit as well, maybe 4, 5 through to 11, 12. And I hope your families, if you choose to use it like it as much as mine do. Uh, Second recommendation, John Ortberg, I'd like you if you were more like me. I'm not trying to make a point through this recommendation, just to be clear. Um, I'm a massive fan of Ortberg's work, and this is the most wonderful book on community. It talks about things like intimacy, vulnerability, uh, littered with amazing stories, and paints the most beautiful picture, I think, of the community that we want to build here in Sutton. Uh, I have read lots of his stuff, and this is my favourite so far. And then the last one, if you want to go deeper even still, will be Tom Wright's recent biography of Paul. Uh, This is a very thick book, took me a long time to work through, uh, but I think it's very readable indeed. Paul, of course, wrote much of the New Testament. And one of the challenges of reading through the New Testament is it's not always in chronological order. Uh, Well, Wright addresses that, uh, draws on all the historical evidence from Paul's life as well, and paints the most vivid picture of what his life might have been like. And for me, who's read the Bible for many years, it really brought it to life in some fresh ways. And I think, actually, uh, this is at my home right now, so if anyone wants to borrow it, uh, you're welcome to come and find me, and I will lend it to you. I hope that's enough to get your teeth uh, into over the course of this term. Uh, On to today, Um, as you are aware, we're going through a sermon series called Awaken This Term, uh, which we hope will be a real wake-up call for us as a church at the start of 2019. Uh, But each of our services are taking a step back from that today to talk about where they particularly are at. So five different services, Sutton, Stockwell, Blackfriars, Covent Garden, Bethnal Green, five different speakers. I'm afraid you lot have got little old me. Uh, Though what I want to share is very much in sync with the uh, Awaken series. And just at the outset, I want to pay credit to John Altberg for some of the material in this talk. Uh, He's taking his church through the most wonderful series through Corinthians right now, which has spoken to me in a lot of different ways. And as I've listened to it, I've thought, I think some of this is for Sutton as well. And so just to say, if you hear anything particularly profound or meaningful, just presume it's his work rather than mine. Uh, So to kick things off, I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, If you have a Bible, um, you can turn there. Um, There are also Bibles on the literature table at the back that you can steal if you would like. And um, I'm going to start to read at verse 26. You can read along on the screen. 
This is what it says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Uh, Just to kick things off, just a brief refresher, which I'll do in more detail when I speak in the Awaken series in a few weeks' time, on why we started this service and indeed this church in the first place. It's because we want to be good news to our world. We want to serve those who are in need. We want to provide a sense of home and family for the lonely and those who feel unloved. For those who feel like they're in captivity, like they're trapped by their circumstances, we want to bring and provide a sense of freedom. We want everyone to know that Jesus loves them, that he has the most amazing plan for their lives, and therefore whatever situation they find themselves in, there is hope for their future. We are to be an outward-looking service. We are here to be good news for our world. This is why we do this. And my prayer for us as a community is more than anything else, the hallmark of us is lives that get changed. That's why we're here. I love this quote by Gary Haugen, who heads up International Justice Mission, one of the charities we partner with as a church. He said this, God has a plan to change the world and the lives of everyone in it. It is us, the church. He has no plan B. If I could paraphrase that, God's got a master plan to change Sutton and Carshelton and Banstead and Beddington and Belmont and Cheam and Epsom and Hackbridge and Croydon and Mitcham and Morden and so on and so forth. It is us. We're it. The church. You are God's plan A. The person sitting next to you is God's plan A. The person in front of you It's God's plan A. I, little old me, I'm God's plan A, and he hasn't got a plan B. Don't know about you, I find that incredibly exciting, but also pretty daunting, because I live with myself and I know all of my weaknesses. Uh, One of my favourite stories, just to cheesily illustrate this, uh, came from the early 70s and involves this band here. Next slide. Anyone know who this band is out of interest? (laughs) Wow, what a bunch of rock and roll stars we've got in Sutton. This is the who. This is the who. Uh, 1973, The Who are playing a gig in San Francisco. And uh, the, the drummer, a guy called Keith Moon, has taken a rather potent cocktail of drugs, and he basically can't continue. And they take him off stage, give him a cortisol injection, and he gets through another song or two, but basically then he just can't go on. And so in the middle of this live concert, the, the lead singer and guitarist, a guy called Pete Townsend, he comes to the microphone and he says, can anyone out there play the drums? Second row of this concert, there is a 19-year-old guy called Scott Halpin, and his friends start nominating him. He can play the drums. So live in the middle of this gig, Pete Townsend looks at this guy. He says, do you think you can do it? Scott Halpin gulps. He says, I'll give it a try. And so Pete Townsend reaches out a hand. He pulls him up onto stage, puts him behind the drums, and says, just follow my lead. 
a 19-year-old Scott Halpin got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to play live with The Who. Uh, when I heard that story, I was like, wow. Like, I used to dream of going to Spice Girls gigs and someone saying, does anyone know Jerry Halliwell's part? Because I, I really do, I really do. Anyway, forget Jerry a minute. Um, the point of that illustration, the cheesy link is this. Our world is sick. Our world is broken. And it's as if the creator of the universe wants to reach out a hand to us and say, hey, come on stage, let's put this right, just follow my lead. That makes me feel really exciting, but it also makes me gulp, because I wonder if I'm up to it. I've got to shed some bad habits. I've got to break through fear. I've got to reorder my priorities. There's a whole load of my life that I need to change. How on earth can I change that I might be a bringer of change? That's what I want to look at today. Like if we want the hallmark of our service to be changed lives, and we're the ones to do it, how on earth do we change? And uh, to give this talk some structure, I want to steal Mr. Ortberg's idea that there are four different parts to our identity, four different selves, so to speak. And our journey following Jesus is basically to be a journey from the first self all the way through to the fourth self. Hopefully, you'll understand what I mean by the time I am done. Our first self is what I would call our public self. This is the me that you are looking at right now. This is the me that I want to project to the rest of the world, the me that I want to impress everybody else. This is the me that's all about image. And if we think about the city of Corinth, uh, the city where the letter to the Corinthians that we read a few moments ago was written, this was probably their biggest problem. It was an overly image-conscious city. A bit of background for a moment. Corinth was situated in a really strategic place. There's a couple of maps coming up on the screen. Uh, One of those harbours basically leads to Asia. The other one leads to Italy and the rest of Europe. And so in the ancient world, 2,000 years ago, if you're going to be involved in global trade, basically you want to move here. Incredibly strategic, very lucrative place to live. Uh, In one ancient fable, a philosopher went to the Oracle of Delphi and asked, how may I get rich, son of Zeus and Leto? The Oracle of Delphi answered, by acquiring what lies between Corinth and Sisyphon. In other words, you want a great life, move here. Buy property. Settle down. And then you will have the most amazing life possible. Uh, Corinth was basically a centre of innovation. It was a magnet for entrepreneurs. And it quickly gained a reputation for being the most competitive city in the ancient world. Uh, The famous Isthmian Games were held there. The Olympic Games were held there. Uh, Not actually just for athletes, but for poets and musicians and public speakers. It was basically, basically like one giant episode of Britain's Got Talent. It was all about life being on stage, impressing everybody else. In the whole of the New Testament, the word boasting appears uh, 59 times. 55 of those times, it's used by Paul, and 39 of those times is in this letter to the Corinthians. In other words, Corinth is ground zero for boasting and bragging and showing off, portraying an image to the world in the ancient world. One of the ways they did this, which you can kind of Google online, is through inscriptions. Loads of building projects going up everywhere, loads of monuments to people. And on each of them, they would write inscriptions praising themselves, telling the world how amazing they really were. Can you imagine a society where people would publicly post their achievements and successes in order to be seen and liked by other people? How we have changed in 2,000 years, not a lot. In fact, a whole load of authors and commentators, they liken inscriptions to the Corinthians 
as social media is to us today. But this was Corinth. Who I am is who you say that I am, who I present to you. And Paul basically says, if you want to change, that's not the way to live. If you want your life to be transformed, that's not the way to live. And his strategy for dealing with this public self is basically this. You've got to die to it. This carefully constructed exterior, you've got to bring that down. You've got to stop living for that. He writes things like this. Not many of you were wise when you were called. None of us can boast before God. This is the first step to a changed life. Stop living for the public self. And yet, even as a follower of Jesus, it's so easy to be ensnared by this. Uh, most of you know that before I worked for Christchurch, I worked for the BBC. They things like football commentating, sports reporting, stuff like that. And to be honest, whenever I met new people, uh, kind of parties and stuff, I quite like telling them what I did for a living because it always led to interesting follow-up questions. You know, what's the best game you've seen? What's the best goal you've seen live? And so on and so forth. That kind of changed when I started working for Christchurch London. Uh, Hi, what did you do for a living? I'm Andy, I work for a church. There were no interesting follow-up questions. And I remember six months into working for Christchurch, I began to think to myself, what have I done with my life? Have I made the right choice? And um, I'd gone to a conference uh, up north in Derbyshire, which was for leaders from across the country for prayer and fasting for two days. And I find prayer and fasting really tough. So at the end of the first day, I'm tired, I'm hungry, and I'm very, very grumpy. And I get to my hotel room, and I put on the TV, and reading the news and sport back to me is uh, one of my former colleagues, who's clearly had the most amazing promotion since I left, and probably with it an amazing salary, on a leading TV station, and like they're now reading the news and sport back to me. And I want to be honest with you, I was not pleased for them. I was like, that should be me. Like, I was so jealous, I was so envious, I was like, I was so much better than them, and here I am in the middle of nowhere attending a conference I don't want to be at, I'm tired, I'm not hungry, what am I doing with my life? And I basically attended my own pity party. And once I got a bit of emotional distance from that moment, I just began to realise, oh, I've, I've kind of started living for my public self again. Main reason I wanted that role was because I wanted people to like me and to be impressed by me. I wanted approval and success. And I began to realize if I really want to live a changed life, I've got to die to all of that. That's not what I'm to live for. That's the first step to a changed life. We stop living for the public self. And just to be clear, this isn't just a journey we go on individually. This is the journey that Jesus takes us on together. Uh, sometimes I meet people who look at the church who would call themselves, you know, I'm not a Christian, don't believe in the whole God thing. Well, they often look at churches, maybe even like us, and they say, I'm not sure I'd fit. I'm not sure they'd accept me. If they knew what my life was like, they wouldn't, they wouldn't welcome me in. That's, that's not what we're to build here. It goes without saying, but let me just say it anyway. You know, we've been doing weekly Sundays for three months now. Let, let me just remind us, we are not here to build a nice, glossy, showy church. We are not here to put on a performance. We are not here for numbers or for status or to be the biggest church in the area. We are not to dream of the future and think, I wonder what my role will be. I wonder what my title will be. We're not to feel upset if we feel like we compare unfavorably with others. We're not to dream of a church that others look at and say, wow, those people must be amazing. Look of what they've done. Oh, God, keep us from such vanity. One of the things that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, which interests me, this is the message translation, he says this, so I wouldn't get a big head, 
I was given the gift of a problem by God to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Isn't that interesting? God puts a problem into Paul's life to remind him, like, if you're going to do anything, it's going to be me, not you. I want to use you, sure. But I'm going to let you keep this problem to remind you. And you could get proud very easily. It's not about that. Elsewhere, Paul says this. If I'm going to boast at all, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And this brings us to our second self. If our first self is our public self that I show to the rest of the world, my second self is my private self. This is who I see. This is the me that I don't want you to see. This is the me that's lazy or proud or greedy or selfish. I don't want any of you to see that part of me. And if you think about it, we can think about our private self, who I see, and my public self as overlapping circles. Coming up on the screen. Now, that area of overlap, where my private self, who I know me to be, and who you think me to be, where they overlap, that's what I would call authenticity. Can I ask you just a, a reflective question? How authentic a person are you? Everything outside of that zone, put the next couple of slides up, is what the Bible calls hypocrisy. Where you think I'm better than I really am. Or I try and convince you that I'm better than I really am. And, and this is an issue for all of us, I think, to some extent. I was reading some research recently which talked about how perfectionism is a growing problem in the UK right now. There's been a massive increase in people who feel the need to be perfect to get approval from other people. And we adopt a whole load of different strategies to keep this hidden part of me hidden from everybody else. Let me just give you a few of mine. Number one, busyness. I know in here is, is not as it should be, but I don't want to address it because that means I have to change. So I'll just get really busy. I'll fill my life with screens, the internet, and work stuff, and social engagements to save me addressing what's really going on inside. I wonder if anyone can relate. Second strategy of mine would be denial and blame. You know, I think, oh, maybe I've got a problem, but I'm not as bad as that person. Those people over there, they're the ones with the real issue. I'm pretty good in comparison. If you ever gossip, if you ever gossip, it may be a sign that there's part of your hidden self that needs working on. Because if I gossip about someone, if I say, you know, James here, oh, can you believe he did this? I would never do that. What I'm basically saying is, if I was in the same circumstances, I wouldn't have made that mistake. I'm kind of puffing myself up. It's a recurring phrase in Corinthians. Maybe if you gossip, maybe it's a sign that, oh, there's stuff in here that needs to be dealt with. Or a third strategy is rather than avoiding what's going on inside, I face it head on, but in a really destructive way. Basically, I wallow in self-pity. I know there's stuff that's wrong in here, and I just think, oh, I'm rubbish. I'm a failure. Like, oh, I'm just, I'm a worse person in the world. And rather than bringing it into the light for Jesus to deal with, I just kind of wallow in it. None of these are effective strategies for dealing with the private part of me. There is only one. Paul describes it as vulnerable, honest confession. Humility. If I want to live a changed life, I die to my public self and I confess my private self. That's the second step to a changed life. But Paul's really interesting on this because he basically is honest at every level. So 2,000 years ago in Corinth, like orators, public speakers, they were like the rock stars of the day. They had amazing followings. And all of them would boast and brag and perform to show everybody else how amazing they were. Not, not Paul. Paul says this, I, I didn't come to you with eloquence. 
with wise and superior words. Just remember, I came to you in weakness and in fear with great trembling. No one in Corinth spoke like this. No one spoke like this. It's like, just remember, I'm really weak. I get really scared by stuff. Now, I've got this amazing message, but I'm not really qualified. This is the journey Jesus leads us on. Just to be honest about, yeah, this is who I am. And here's what I find interesting and a little amusing. Paul doesn't just talk about his own weaknesses. He talks about the Corinthians' weaknesses. So 2,000 years ago, one of the strategies for public speakers, if you want to get a great following, was basically this. Flatter your audience. If you want to be the biggest public speaking rock star possible, tell your audience how amazing they are, how gifted they are, how brilliant they are. Not Paul. He, He says this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise or influential or of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of the world, the weak, the lowly, the despised, the things that are not. Imagine if I had started our service this morning by saying this. Welcome to church, everyone. Just before we sing together, just want to give you a reminder. Remember what you were? Bunch of losers. I've watched your lives. I saw you set up this morning. What a bunch of weaklings. What a bunch of fools. How would you feel? And yet this is what Paul does. Why would he do this? Well, here I think is one of the reasons. It's his, basically his way of saying, look, I'm, I'm weak. And let's not forget that you are also weak. But we just accept and love each other anyway. And through our weakness, God can build something wonderful and beautiful. Some of you I've known for a long time. Some of you I've known for 15 years, even, even longer. Um, I, I know in that time there have been many moments where I've probably annoyed you or upset you or offended you or got on your nerves. Uh, as a smaller side, if that does happen, maybe that's a sign that we're getting close enough to build real community. Because real community, real family, is not the absence of all that. It's like, yeah, that happens, but we commit to each other anyway. I'm weak, you are weak, but through our weakness, God, God could do something really special with us. Just as a reminder, uh, back in September, before we went to weekly services, there were about five of us uh, praying at uh, Pat and James's house. And we were just praying for the, the kind of journey we're on as a service. And uh, to be honest, I was getting a bit tired and bored. You know, that, that moment in a prayer meeting where you're like, oh, please let this end. And um, Christian started to pray. Uh, Christian can't be here today, but uh, Christian started to pray. And he just said, I just feel this prompting from God that we as a service are going to be a place where many hurting, lonely, broken, scared, burnt, vulnerable people come. And this motley crew of broken people, through them, God's going to not only bring healing, restoration, hope for the future, but he's going to build something wonderful and beautiful. And as he shared this, I mean, I don't want to hype the moment up, but I had the most profound experience of God. I wasn't looking for it. I didn't expect it, but it was almost like I could see it. I'm like, that's who we are to be. I'd love it to be said of us in the future that only God could have done that through them. When they look at the things that we do and the lives that are changed, and they look at us, they think that must be God at work through those people. We die to our public self and we confess our private self. And this brings us to our third self. This is what I would call our real self. If my private self is who I think I am, my real self is who God sees me. You see, I I know I'm weak and broken. I am a deeply flawed human being, but to be honest with you, I don't know the half of it. 
I don't know how broken I really am. And actually, that's the case for all of us. All of us are, to some extent, self-deceived. There's a whole load of research on this. Uh, there was one study uh, recently of over one million students. So this is an extraordinary piece of research. Of one million students, 70% were living their lives thinking, yeah, I'm, a, I'm above average in skills like leadership and so on and so forth, only 2% thought they were below average. In other words, at least half of one million students surveyed thought better of themselves than they really were. And it seems like this effect is more pronounced the cleverer you get. So they did a similar survey of college professors. 94% thought that they were doing above average work. Well, it can only be 50%. So at least half of college professors think they are better than they really are. And this bleeds into every area of life. I saw one survey of married couples. Uh, when they took married couples and asked each side of the couple, what percentage of the housework do you do? The totals added up to over 120%. <laughs> in other words, at least half the people in this room, at least half, think they do more housework than they really do. Joy's there, I'm going to get it's this half. No, 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 I'm joking. I'm joking. But all of us live, to some extent, with self-deception. And if we think about it, we can think about private self and our real self, again, as overlapping circles. And the bit in the middle, the bit where these overlap, is the, the level to which I would call us self-aware. Can I ask you another question to reflect on? How self-aware are you at the start of 2019? Everything outside of that zone is what I would call fantasy or illusion. That's what makes for amazing Britain's Got Talent auditions. We all love these moments where someone comes on stage and they start to sing and everybody knows how bad a singer this person is, apart from who? Apart from the singer. So many of us live in such illusion. And Paul's really interesting on this. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. In other words, he says this, I'm not qualified to be my own judge because there's far too much about me that I don't know. My capacity for self-deception is too great. My conscience might be clear. I might think I do most of the housework, but that doesn't make me innocent. So what's our strategy for dealing with the real self? Well, let me say two things. Firstly, to some extent, I will never know the extent of brokenness in my own life. Paul writes this, wait until the Lord comes, he'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness. In other words, until that moment in time, when Jesus returns and puts everything right, I will never fully know the amount of brokenness in my own life. I will never fully know the extent to which Jesus had to go to the cross. Until that time, here's my strategy, I ask God for revelation. I pray prayers like Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Praying that prayer sometimes is a scary thing to do. Sometimes when I've prayed it, I've realized, oh, I'm, I'm still holding a grudge against that person. I need to forgive that person. Oh, I'm, I'm being lazy in this area of my work. Oh, I'm being stingy in this area of my finances. Oh, I, I need to confess that habit that I can't break. You up for praying that prayer? Search me, oh God. Show me more of just 
the parts of me that need work if I'm to change. We die to our public self. We confess our private self. We ask God to reveal who we really are, that we can bring it into the light. And this brings us to our fourth self. This is where change comes. This is our glory self. This is the person that God is calling us to be. This is how we change. Tim Keller, who's a brilliant author and speaker in the States, he says, our glory self is the person God had in mind when he thought us up as radiant as heaven itself. It's the person we are made to be deep inside. You know, one of the reasons so many of us crave fame, popularity and pleasure and power is because all of us are made for glory. We just desperately crave glory. But the problem is if I try and get hold of glory without going through the kind of character change that glory requires, it's always going to end in a crash. If I want to walk into my glorious self, I need to journey through this process. God, reveal more of me that I can work on it. Paul talks about this journey in 2 Corinthians 3. He says this, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I guess here is the $64 billion question. If I want to change, how do I walk into my glory self? How do I step by step, bit of glory by bit of glory, walk into the person God's making me to be? Here's the really simple answer. It's just faith and obedience. As I begin to realize, oh, there's an area of my life I need to work on. Faith is basically, the Christian faith is this. It's trusting that Jesus is basically right about everything. Oh, generosity, forgiveness, and compassion and kindness and hospitality. And then thinking, okay, if that is true, I now need to live that out. Faith and obedience. This is how we change. Uh, let me just give you a really simple story of how this worked itself out in, in my own life in just one area. And uh, this story is very ordinary, and in some ways uh, it's, it's meant to be. Uh, when I was at, at uni, I studied psychology. And uh, in my final year, I studied rule-breaking behavior. And uh, part of my project was I made up these signs which said, do not walk on the grass, these kind of professional signs. I, I put them around the university campus, and I would go and hide in a nearby bush. And I would watch whether people obeyed or disobeyed the rule. Then I'd come out from the bush, and I'd give them a personality questionnaire to post back to me, and therefore I would find the kind of personalities that obeyed and disobeyed different kinds of rules. That was kind of the project uh, in its simplest form. Uh, well, you can imagine the kind of reputation I began to get on campus. <laughs> Hello, I've just been hiding in the bush, watching you. Will you return my questionnaire, please? And um, weeks went by, and uh, I'd given out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questionnaires. I only had eight returned. And uh, this was a problem because eight was nowhere near enough to do any decent kind of statistical analysis. I needed hundreds back. And um, if I fail my project, however well I do on every other part of my degree, I fail my entire degree. So this is a massive deal. And uh, I am praying, God, I'm going to fail. God, I'm going to fail. What am I going to do? Help me, help me, help me. And my prayer life became more and more and more desperate. And I remember this, this moment in my, uh, in my bedroom, in my house at uni. And I'm on my, deep, I'm on my knees. I'm crying out to God, God, help me, please. And the strangest thing happened. It's hard to really put into words. The best way I, I can articulate it is it, su it suddenly felt like God was present in the room. It suddenly felt like the room was filled with his peace and with his presence. And I, I felt him speak. It wasn't an audible voice. It was like a voice in my heart. 
And I, I just simply felt him say this, what's in your bag right now? What's in your bag right now? I thought, that's really strange. So I opened my university bag and I pulled out this horribly crumpled psychology questionnaire that somebody else had given me to fill in for their project. And it, it was like God didn't need to say anything else. It was like, how could I possibly be praying for people to fill in my questionnaire when I'm not prepared to do the same for somebody else? Like, whoever this person is, they really matter to God. And this questionnaire really matters to them. And so this questionnaire should really matter to me. And it's difficult to put into words, but it felt like in that moment, the holiest thing I could do was fill in their questionnaire. So I stopped my prayer time and I filled in their psychology questionnaire and I thought, I'm going to hand deliver this so they don't have to wait for the post. So I found their address, I walked across Exeter, I put it through their front door and I went onto campus to see if any more of my questionnaires had been returned. Got to my pigeonhole, only one more had been returned that weekend. Now I've got nine, it's nowhere near enough to pass my project. So I walked down the corridor to my tutor's office, I knocked on his door and he, he wasn't in. So I went to his secretary's office to book an appointment and as I opened the door, the secretary looked at me and she said, would you by any chance be Andy Tilson? I said, yes, I am. She said, Andy, the strangest thing has just happened. We have suddenly had a delivery of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of envelopes, all addressed to you from all across the city. She said, I tried to put them in your pigeonhole, but they wouldn't fit. I've had to create and build a brand new pigeonhole for all of your questionnaires. Would you follow me? And she led me down the corridor to this box that was overflowing with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of return questionnaires. When I sat down with my project tutor, he said, before we talk about your project, you need to tell me how did you get that response? He'd been a professor for over 20 years. He said, I've never known a response like this. You have to write about this in your project. I was like, can I say it's God? I don't really know. Now, in some ways, it's a, really, it's a really silly story, but I learned a couple of really very simple things. That firstly, following Jesus really does affect every single part of my life. It's not just about what we do in church on Sundays. Like, following Jesus can affect, it can be as boring as filling in somebody's questionnaire because it matters to them and they matter to God. But secondly, it taught me a really valuable lesson about how, how do I change? I asked God, God, show me are there any areas in my life that I need to change? And then I need to trust that he's right and need to obey him. Can I ask you, do you know what the next step is for you on your journey from one glory to another? If you want to become a more glorious being on the back of this Sunday, what's the next step? Maybe for some people, God is asking you to cut out an hour of TV this week, 10 minutes a day, so you can pray. Maybe he's asking you to make a decision to forgive someone who hurt you. Maybe he's calling you to take a risk in your work. Maybe it's about changing an attitude to a colleague in the workplace. Maybe it's deciding to go on a journey of generosity with your finances. Maybe God's speaking to you about taking 10 minutes to befriend a neighbour. Maybe there's a friend or a family member who needs some particular attention right now. And this isn't just a journey we go on individually, this is a journey that we go on together as, as a service. One of the things I feel kind of God may be nudging us about as a community is creating what I'd call an invitational culture. 
Now, if people's lives are going to change, it's going to happen through us. So we lived with this, come to Alpha, come to Steps, come to church on Sunday, come meet my church community. And I, I totally get, like, life's busy. Have I really got time to open my life to one more person? Doing this can be scary. We might get rejected. They might say no. Are we prepared corporately to respond to what God is saying to us about reaching out to those around us? We die to our public self. We confess our private self. We ask for revelation about who we really are. And then to walk into our glory self, we trust and obey. And here's where it gets exciting. Paul finishes by saying this. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. In other words, if we go on this journey together, then in time people will look at us and they will gain faith because they look at our lives and realise that must be God. As I said earlier, my dream for this service is that in six and twelve months' time, in two years and five years and ten years, they look at us and think, wow, I'm not looking at how amazing they are. That God, their God, the God, must be amazing. So can I leave you with a challenge? Are you up for going on this journey? Do you need to die to public ambition? Do you need to be honest about what's going on inside? Do you just pray a brave prayer? Search me, O oh God. Or do you know what he's saying? And it's time to obey. Why don't we stand to our feet? Maybe um, the man want to come up. Father, we stand before you today as weak and flawed and deeply broken people. But we rejoice because that's your speciality. And you delight in using us in our brokenness to build something beautiful and wonderful. So I want to pray in this moment that you'd be speaking to each of us about the next step that we need to take on our journey with Jesus. Maybe it's a first step with Jesus. Maybe it's a thousand step with Jesus. But show us what we need to do that we might be more glorious individuals and a more glorious community that reflects better the amazing God that we serve. And as we sing now, I want to pray these words would be an expression of our longing for you, our need for you, and our love for you. The reason we do this is because you first loved us. So we want to finish by looking to Jesus, singing of his greatness, and by confessing our need. Be with us, I pray, by the presence of your Holy Spirit as we worship you now and continue to speak and give us ears to hear what you are saying. We ask this in the name of Jesus.